If you haven't been with us for, for a while, we're taking 90 days, about 12 weeks, to walk through the life of Jesus. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting, at the beginning of every year, I like to uh, kind of start my journey over with Christ. I start with the Gospels and read through his life. I think it's a great way to be reminded about all the things Jesus did and all the plans he has for you. But as you, we're reading through the Gospels, and the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This year I started in Matthew. As you read through the Gospels, I find something really interesting, and it kind of goes a little bit against what we believe. Uh, they have this kind of ongoing thought that, that um, you know, if I'm a sinner, if I'm bad, I can't be with Jesus. But what we find in the Gospels time and time again is that being a sinner doesn't disqualify you from following Jesus. And in, in fact, being a sinner is a prerequisite for following Jesus. That, that if you're going to follow Jesus and if you're thinking, you know, he wouldn't like me, all this baggage I have, all the things I've done, what I did last week, the fight I had on my way to church, the things I said about my husband, the things I thought about my wife, like all those things that, that kind of linger in, in our minds, you know what I'm talking about? The things that maybe perhaps you're embarrassed about that you like to keep hidden away, that you think nobody knows. All those things that we kind of feel like, these are things that kind of disqualify me from following Jesus. In fact, when you read through the Gospels and you read through his life and you kind of follow his, his early followers, and this morning we're going to look at a few, when you follow his early followers, what you find is this doesn't disqualify you from following Jesus. This is a prerequisite from following Jesus. And it even goes a step further. If you've ever struggled with your faith and thought, I'm not sure what I believe, and maybe you're here and you're an unbeliever, you, you, know, you don't go to church, you're not really sure you believe in Jesus, you're not sure you want to believe in Jesus, you were just promised lunch after, at the end of service, so you showed up. <clears throat> Whatever reason you find yourself here and you find yourself maybe struggling with your faith, what's really interesting is, is that even unbelief doesn't disqualify you from following Jesus. Because all of his followers... And we'll get to this in a few weeks. All of his followers at the end of Jesus' life didn't believe. All of his followers unbelieved. I mean, that's really interesting. When you begin to, to, to walk, watch this kind of uh, cycle that takes place with his followers, right? They, they believed and then they, they weren't sure. And then they, they get to, you know, Jesus dying on a cross and they all unfollowed. They all abandoned him. But as a matter of fact, there's another passage in Scripture that's recorded that, that talks about the follow, uh, these followers of Jesus. This is in John 6. They're starting to hear the things Jesus are teaching and it's starting to make sense. And they're not really sure they want to believe it. They're actually like considering opting out. And Jesus gives them another challenge again to follow him. And they tie back into it. So we see time and again, they believed and they didn't believe. They believed and then they doubted. And then at the very end, they even unfollowed when Jesus died. So even our unbelief doesn't disqualify us from following after Jesus. Now, in terms of his first century followers, there's really quite an assortment of people. When you think of the people who first followed Jesus, sometimes we get this idea that they're just fishermen. But it was actually even more than that. The people that followed Jesus in the first century, there was a whole list of them. There's some small business owners. There's some IRS agents, some tax collectors, and we're all thrilled for that news. <clears throat> there, there's patriots. There's people that were just, they were just like nationalists. They, were, they loved Israel. They loved everything about Israel, and they hated the Romans. And they thought Jesus was coming to set up his kingdom and kind of expel Rome from the kingdom. They were the nationalists, the patriots. There were men and women. There were blue-collar workers and white-collar workers. There was some not-so-educated people, and I highlighted this one. There were some educated people. And the reason I highlighted that is because oftentimes we were told, and if you were in college and this was ever told to you, that we really can't trust these accounts of Jesus. We can't trust these Gospels because these, these were men who weren't educated. They couldn't even write in their own language. How did they write this, this detailed narrative of, of Jesus in a language they couldn't even speak in Greek? It didn't, doesn't make any sense. These are uneducated men. You can't trust the Gospels. 
But what we actually find is there were some very educated men who followed Jesus. As a matter of fact, Matthew records, and this is kind of glossed over all the time when people read through this, that a scribe came to Jesus, and a scribe is a very educated man, a man who can speak two or three languages, came to Jesus and said, I'm going to follow you everywhere. And what do you think a scribe does? He writes. He writes everything he sees and everything he, he, he witnesses. And so th- this whole idea that these gospels can't be, that they can't be trusted because these are uneducated men. They haven't done their research. That way of thinking is very old. Most, most wise men, teachers, philosophers, theologians, they've moved beyond that to say that doesn't really count. There were educated people who followed Jesus, who followed him and wrote specific details about the life of Jesus that we can trust. So we can trust the gospels. We can trust these accounts. We can trust the things that were written written about Jesus. And when we get to his, first early, to his first century followers, we begin to see this kind of really interesting group of people take shape. Now, if, if you haven't been here, we'll do a real quick catch up. If you're watching for the first time and you missed uh, the first few part of this series, we started with John the Baptist. John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he gathers a large crowd of people. And his whole point of him being here was to introduce people to Jesus. So he gathers a crowd and then Jesus shows up and he literally diverts all of their attention to, D- to Jesus. It's like, hey, thanks for being here. Look, there's Jesus. And he, he d- turns everyone's attention to Jesus. Jesus gets baptized, this whole awesome thing happens, and then you think he's coming to center stage to kind of take over and and run his ministry, but he doesn't. He runs out to the wilderness, and he wrestles with with the tempter, with the devil, with the prodder, the person who's there to to trip him up. And he tempts him with the very same thing that Jesus would be tempted with time and time again throughout his entire ministry on earth. And that's this. Would he opt for the ways of the kingdom of God, or would he opt for the ways of the kingdom of man? Would he see what hung in the balance and pursue the ways God was bringing him here to introduce? Or would he continue to do things the way it's always been done on planet Earth? Jesus being tempted, he comes out of his temptation. He heads north to the town of Galilee. And the text tells us this in Luke 4, that news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues. And everyone praised his name. Because everybody had come out to see John the Baptist. And John turned that crowd over to Jesus. Now everybody was seeing Jesus and praising Jesus and following Jesus' teachings. <coughs> Excuse me. So one day, after church, after synagogue, he's kind of teaching this guy named Simon Peter, who we know now, but in this day, no one really knew him. He was just an, an average man, just a fisherman. He finds Jesus, and he invites Jesus over for lunch. And on the way to his house for lunch, <coughs> Peter kind of tells Jesus that he has this ulterior motive. He says, Jesus, I'm really inviting you over because... My mother-in-law is sick, and I'm hoping you might be able to do something about that. They get to his house, and Jesus does what Jesus could do. It was just amazing. Jesus healed his mother-in-law. But Jesus did it on the Sabbath day, and you weren't supposed to do things on the Sabbath. So he asked them to keep it quiet. Keep this hush-hush. Don't tell anyone. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 sure, no. Well, inevitably, word leaks out. Word leaks out through the town. The community begins to hear what Jesus did. So the text tells us that that night, so to them, the days end at night, That night, as the sun set, the people brought Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Now, when we see this in our Gospels, oftentimes we just kind of read through this because this is the kind of stuff Jesus did, right? He just showed up and he'd heal people. What's incredible about this first first time Jesus does this, though, is that in this culture, you weren't, like, you weren't ever supposed to lay hands on sick people, especially people that had kind of physical manifestations of sickness out of fear that if you touched them, you would get what they had because there was some spiritual connection to sin and sickness. They didn't understand germs. You know, they got like half of it right. 
you know, with germs, you can be infected. But what was awesome about Jesus is when Jesus touched the sick people, he didn't, get the, he didn't receive their sickness. They received his healing and they were made well. And they had this connection between what sin was and what sickness was. And they just thought that sickness was kind of your punishment or the representation of what was already going on in your life, of this sin. And that if Jesus was to take the stage and say, I'm here to forgive you of all of your sins, they would, you know, the question would be, how do we know that? How do we know you can do that? How do I know you can forgive me for my sins? But when Jesus shows up and he begins to heal every manner of sickness and every manner of disease, and they see this connection between sickness and disease and sin, it's almost like this little light begins to go off in their heads. Oh, so if you are to heal me of my, my diseases, if you are to heal me of my sicknesses, maybe perhaps you also have the ability to heal me of my sins. And this sets the stage for this incredible thing that's going to happen next. We're going to go into the story of Jesus calling his first followers, his first disciples. <clears throat> They're kind of gathering around, and as we walk through this story, one of the things I find really interesting is that it's recorded twice. It's recorded in Matthew and it's recorded in Luke. And when Matthew goes through it, he kind of glosses through it. He goes really fast. And Luke is a historian. Luke gives us all this extra detail that I think is needed. Because when you read Matthew's account, it kind of sounds far-fetched. It sounds a little almost ludicrous. Like, who would do this? So this is where the story picks up. <clears throat> Jesus is kind of walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees a guy named Peter and Andrew or Simon and Andrew, and they're out there fishing. He sees Simon and Andrew, and he walks up to them and says, hey, come follow me. And the text tells us in Matthew, at once, with no other prodding, with no other questions, at once, they left their nets and they followed him. Then they're walking along. They see two more men. These are James and John. They see them in a boat fishing. And Jesus again yells out to them, hey, come follow me. And immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. And you kind of get this idea. They're like, hey, you know, <clears throat> good luck, dad. I know you raised me to take over the family business, but no, we're just going to follow this guy we don't know. He just said, follow me. So we're going to abandon our entire lives, everything we know, everything we love, and we're just going to follow you. And we get this idea that they just kind of did this reckless thing and just kind of went in that direction. <clears throat> the, the Christian faith I was brought up in, I've even heard it taught like that's what you had to do. You had to abandon all reason. You had to abandon all the things you cared about because if Jesus wasn't Lord of everything, he wasn't Lord at all. If, he wasn't, if you weren't willing to just sacrifice any, everything and run in that direction, then he really wasn't Lord of your life. And you get this idea like, like that just sounds crazy. And if that's what Jesus is asking us to do, could we do it? Would we do it? It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Then we read Luke's version. In Luke's version of the accounts, he says the same thing John does, but he, or, or rather that Matthew does, but he offers us a little bit more detail, a little more detail that I think we need that shows this incredible uh, kind of story that takes place between Jesus and these first followers. Luke says this, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, this is the Sea of Galilee, he's kind of standing by the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him because everywhere Jesus went, the crowds of people followed, and they were listening to the word of God. And right there, we stumble upon this very, very important, important idea, especially if you're new to faith or if you're questioning faith or, or wondering if you could believe or if you should believe. <clears throat> and, and that's this. Uh, apart from all other religions, apart from all other religious faiths or even some Christian churches, apart from that Christianity, Christian faith begins with information. It doesn't begin with faith. We are saved by faith, but we are, that first thing that happens on the inside of us is information that allows us to walk out and then believe. 
It, it happens first with information. If you were, if it were raised in a church and stepped out of it, or maybe you're a part of another church where you should never question because it's not about information. You just have to believe and believe. You have to believe in faith. If you're never allowed to question, you need to step out of that because even his disciples, even the very people who followed after Jesus questioned. It was based on information. There was some information given, and then faith began to grow, and then they believed and followed. It's like the story with John the Baptist. We covered this for two weeks already, so I'll quiz you again. John the Baptist is on the banks of the Jordan River baptizing people, and Jesus shows up. And what does John say? He doesn't say follow. He doesn't say abandon reason. He doesn't say go running for the hills. He doesn't say believe and believe. What does he say? It starts with an L. You should know this by now. Look. Look, the Lamb of God. Hey, all of you people, let me draw your attention to this, to this, this person, this thing that I've come to introduce. Look, behold, the Lamb of God. You Pay some attention. Observe him. Begin to see if what he says isn't real. Begin to see if what he says doesn't challenge you. And then maybe you'll begin to follow. And then from following, you'll begin to believe that what he says is true and that who he says is who he says he is. It doesn't start first with faith. It starts first with some information. Look, there's Jesus. And from information, it is transformed into faith. And our faith is transformed into following after Jesus, who he is and what he has for us. So the story goes on. Jesus is on the edge of the the, the Sea of Galilee, he's teaching, the crowd's pressing in, and he's kind of being backed up and backed up and backed up further against the water. And you almost get the idea of Jesus saying, listen, I'm not ready to walk on water. We're going to do that later. I need to find another way out. And he looks over and he sees two boats on the side of the water. So he says this, he, he saw the, uh, at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. And the reason they're washing their nets is because it's kind of midday. It's not, it's not like dawn anymore. In, in this fishing community, you fished with nets, and when you fished with nets, you fished at night. Because when the sun went down, the fish would come up to feast on the surface. So you would go out at night with nets to catch your fish. Well, this is morning. They've been out all night. They've done their fishing. They're back. They've like cleaned out their boats, you know, all the beer cans and all the trash, and they pulled their nets out. And the, I got, You guys laugh at that and not other stuff. Huh. Keep my eye on you guys. <clears throat> they drag their nets out and they're washing their nets and then they're going to net their, let's, their, their nets dry. Basically, they've done their, their, their due diligence. They've done their work. It was a long night. They went out fishing and they fish and now they're back and Jesus sees them. He sees their boats <clears throat> and he gets into one, this one belonging to Simon, and he asks him to put out a little from the shore. I mean, even that's a little backwards. It's not like, yes, hey, will you take me away from shore? He climbs in and says, hey, let's go out a few yards. Let's, like eight or ten yards, not too far. Let's just go out a little bit so that I can continue to teach. So Simon takes him out, and then he sits down, and he continues to teach the people from the boat. Now, he's teaching all of them, and he's teaching with, with such, such knowledge and such wisdom. The crowd is just completely enamored at what, he, at what he's teaching them. And we know that it wasn't just Simon listening to this, but Andrew and John and James, they were all listening to these words of Jesus and to what he was teaching them. He gets done, he wraps up his message, and he gives an invitation. But he doesn't give an invitation to the whole crowd. He gives an invitation to Simon Peter. And he gives an invitation for Peter to do something that Peter was absolutely capable of doing. But Peter, my guess is, didn't want to do it, as we find out. When he had finished speaking, 
as they've heard him, and they're all just beginning to be transformed by this information they're, hear, they're hearing. He looks at Simon Peter, and he says this, put out into the deep water, and let's let down the nets for a catch. Hey, hey Peter, I know you're capable. You're a fisherman. I know you can do this. I, I know you have the ability. You have the nets, and I know you, you, you just got done, but let's go out for a fish. Clearly, Peter's capable of doing this. He's a fisherman, right? Peter absolutely has the ability to go out into the deep and go fishing. But my guess is Peter didn't want to. Do you know why Peter didn't want to? Because he's washing his nets. He just got done doing it. It was a long night. As a matter of fact, that's what Peter says. Peter responds to him, and he responds with with a a way he, he, he kind of attributes, a new title he gives to Jesus that only Luke records. Nobody else records it. And he says this. He says, Master, we've worked hard all night. Or in other words, Jesus, I'm tired. Like, I've been doing this all night. We were just out fishing. We got back. We cleaned our nets. If I go out and I take you fishing, do you know what I have to do? I have to come back and clean out the boat and clean my nets and wash them and leave them out to dry again. Jesus, I, I don't know that I want to do this. Besides that, we've been out all night and we haven't caught anything, he says. We haven't caught anything. We went out during the right time. We went out at night and we caught nothing. And now you want us to go out during the day, the wrong time, and you expect us to catch anything? Jesus, I, I don't want to do this. And, and after all, you can almost sense that Simon's thinking this. He didn't have the nerve to say it, and I get it. But you can imagine he's thinking this. Jesus, you're a carpenter. Like, you might know wood, but you don't know fish. Don't tell me how to do my thing. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. Like, you clearly don't know how to fish, Jesus. No one goes out in the day. I'll make a fool of myself. The entire town is here. They're all still watching you. And you want me, the fisherman in the town, to go out during midday to fish. You can sense Simon's frustration. But Simon responds to Jesus with this incredible phrase that I think captures the heart of Simon, and I think it could capture the heart of us. Maybe for you, your faith in Jesus has just gotten kind of old. Have you ever felt that way? Your your faith feels kind of stale. It feels like like faith just fits into this nice little box, and that's about it. And as long as as it stays there, we're okay. But if it asks anything more of us, we don't don't want it. We don't connect to it. Faith began to feel a little old. But Simon's response has the ability to shake it up because Jesus was asking Simon to do something that Simon is very capable of doing, but Simon perhaps doesn't want to do. Jesus, I don't want to do this. We've been out all night, and I'm tired, and it's been a long night. I don't want to do this, but because you say so. Jesus, because you said so. I mean, after all, you healed my mother-in-law, so I guess I owe you this because you said so. Jesus, I'm tired. And it's been a long night, and I've worked hard, but because you say so. Jesus, I don't know what the result's going to be. I might go out and make a fool of myself, but because you said so. Jesus, it might cost me something. It's going to cost me some time, and time is money. It might cost me something, but because you said so. Jesus, because you said so, I will let down the nets. Jesus, because you said so. I'll go fishing, even though I don't want to. Now, at this point, there's a big pause in the story. And if you kind of checked out of this message, I need you to check back in at this point, because this, this is where something significant begins to unfold in the hearts and the minds of, of what's happening in these disciples. And, and you've heard me say this before, but I think this is so incredible in this moment, that Jesus has given Peter a baby step to do something that would kind of start a journey for something significant. 
But Peter had no idea what hung in the balance. And you've heard me say that before. You've heard me say it many times. He had no idea what hung in the balance. He had no idea what saying yes to going fishing would lead him to. He had no idea. He had no idea that Jesus was going to start a new, a new movement, that he was going to have this new, this new governing paradigm, that he was sent to initiate this new relationship with the Father. Peter had no idea, but by saying yes, by being the first one in history to acknowledge the very foundation of what Jesus was about to do, by Peter be, being willing to say yes to Jesus here, the future would unfold so differently for him. Peter had no idea. He had no idea what this would be. Can you show that next picture? You know what this is? St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. He had no idea that years and years and years later, they would build this incredible structure in honor of this man, Peter, who followed Jesus and was willing to say yes to going fishing. He had no idea. And then when they showed the inside, I mean, look at, at, at just the splendor, and it's just amazing. Now, I've never been there, but I can't wait to. If you go to Rome, I expect an invitation. I would love to be there. <clears throat> but I've heard, when you go in there, you should lay down on the ground and look up. Now, I'm sure they're going to frown on that and try to get you to stand up. But lay down and look up. Because it is amazing to think, how in the world could somebody build this today? But they built this in the 16th century. How in the world could they build something with that much splendor and that much beauty? Peter had no idea what hung in the balance. And you know what's amazing about this? Is that this was built over a very small, uh, just a small kind of monument, a small church in honor of Peter. That was there before this. And then in the 16th century, they came along. And they said, no, we need to build something even better and bigger. But both of those were built over the site of Nero's circus. You know what Nero's circus was? It was the auditorium where Nero used to crucify Christians, where Nero used to persecute Christians and feed them to animals, where he would wrap them in the clothes of animals and feed them to wild beasts where he would light their hair on fire with tar and watch them burn, where he would put them and impale them on stakes. And the first persecution of Christians happened right here at this very site. And now there's a monument honoring the man who said, yeah, Jesus, I'll go fishing with you. He had no idea what hung in the balance. Here's my question for you. Do you have any idea? Do you have any idea what hangs in the balance if you'd be willing to say yes to Jesus? For those of you whose faith has felt old, whose faith has felt kind of stale in, in Christianity and, and this faith just fits into this nice little box, do you have any idea what hangs in the balance of those times Jesus nudges you to step out of your comfort zone, to go talk to that person, to, to, to spend a little money and maybe take that person to dinner because they need to hear something from you? Do you have any idea, what, do you have any idea who hangs in the balance of you saying yes to Jesus? Peter had no idea. He had no idea that by saying yes to a fishing trip, years later, they would build monuments in his name, honoring the fact that this man was one of the followers of Jesus. Text continues, when they had done so, when they said, okay, Jesus, we'll do this, we'll let down the nets, not like because of guilt, not because of shame, we're not doing this because we believe in, a, in, in some kind of weird belief. We're doing this because we had some information. We've seen you teach. We have some information, and we know you're a little bit different than other people. So we're just going to take this baby step, and we're going to let down the nets. When they had done so, and something interesting, when they had taken Jesus at his word, when it wasn't just enough to hear, when it wasn't just enough to listen, but when they put some action to listening, something happened. And this is something Jesus taught in his ministry time and time and time again. That it's not good enough to just listen. 
It's not good enough to just hear. It's not good enough to just read the text. It's not good enough to just pray in your closet. That if that's all faith is, it's worthless. Because faith without doing anything is dead. You've got to have some action. You've got to put something to it. It's not good enough to just hear these words, to hear the information. You've got to respond, and you've got to do. And when they responded and they put their nets down, <coughs> the text says, they caught such a large number of fish that their, bo- their nets began to break. So they signaled for their partners. This was uh, James and John. They signaled to them, <coughs> their partners to come over <coughs> in the other boat to help them. They came and they filled both boats full of fish so that both boats were beginning to sink by the weight of it all. I mean, that is amazing. If that's not amazing enough, when Simon Peter saw this, he cried out, we're rich. We won't have to work for weeks. And immediately, Peter offered Jesus a seven-year contract with 30% ownership of the company and a seven-year non-compete upon termination of the contract by either party. I mean, you get what Peter's thinking, right? He's the fisherman. He just hauled in the haul of a lifetime. He's thinking, Jesus, is this scalable? Like, is this repeatable? Can we do this again? Because if we can, I'm all set. No, Peter's reaction is very much what I think our reaction is. If, you, if you're not aware, that's not in the Bible. That's the Journey Church version. <clears throat> Peter's reaction to this is very much what I think my reaction would be, and I'm guessing what your reaction would be. He's seen this man, right? This, he invited Jesus home for lunch. Jesus heals his mother-in-law. Then later that night, he heals all the, these sick people in the town. Then the next day, he's teaching, and there's just something about his teaching that is so amazing and awe-inspiring, and just it's different than anything he's ever heard. And now we ask him to go fishing, and he catches fish at the wrong time of day, more than he's ever caught in his life. What's his reaction to Jesus? This is his reaction to the whole situation. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. Fishing was the last thing on his mind. He fell at Jesus' knees, and he said this. He didn't say, oh, cool, now who's going to clean all these fish? You got one for that, Jesus? He fell to his knees, and he said this. Go away from me, Lord. Go away from me, Lord. Don't come near me. And he, he gives Jesus this new title that is used over and over and over again from this point on. Lord, this, it shows ownership. It shows mastery. Like, Lord, I, I'm, I'm under you. I'm not worthy to be near you. Well, go away from me. Why in the world would Simon now tell Jesus to depart from him, to go away from him? Because he finishes by saying this, I am a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. And just as we've been taught my whole life, and maybe as you've been taught your whole life, sin and Jesus don't mix. Sin can't be where Jesus is. We may be face to face, but we couldn't be further apart. I'm a sinful man. And you might not be God. I'm not really really sure who you are, Jesus, but you're clearly more than me. You're clearly from heaven. You're clearly more than any man I've ever met. I, I, I can't be near you. I'm a sinful man. This isn't right. God and sin don't mix. We were separated. You can't be where I am. And he didn't understand that that was the old way of thinking. Jesus said, you can't be near me. You can't be my followers. You can't come after me unless you're a sinner. All have sinned. All have fallen short. You can't be with me unless you realize that. You can't be with me unless you understand that you've made mistakes and you've had baggage and you can't fix it. Peter, this is exactly where I need to be. No, Jesus, depart from me. You're holy, and clearly I am not. 
After all, doesn't God distance himself from sinners? Isn't that what the church has taught for years and years and years? So that we grew up feeling like, well, if I've sinned, I can't be in church. If I go to church, it's going to fall down on me. If I go to church, lightning's going to strike. The place is going to, I mean, I've heard all these excuses. Because we've been taught that somehow sin and Jesus don't mix. Jesus said, no, 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 that's the very reason I came. To change the old and start something brand new. For Simon Peter and all of his companions, they were completely astonished at the catch of fish they had taken in. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These were Simon's partners, the men who were in the other boat that Simon called over. Then Jesus said to Simon, something that he would say to these guys over and over again, and it almost always happens on water. He says, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. I know you're scared. I know you look at me and you think you can't be near me. This is why I've come. Don't be afraid. You've seen me master nature. You've seen me master the environment. Don't be afraid. And then you, I can imagine when Jesus says this next part, he kind of has a smile on his face. And he looks at Simon Peter. And he says, from now on, Peter, you will fish for people. And at that, they pulled up their boats, went to shore, and they left everything. And these four men followed Jesus, and they died with nothing, not even regret. And they followed him, and they followed him. We say to ourselves, I would too. I mean, if I were there and I saw that, <clears throat> if I were there and Jesus healed my mother-in-law and then healed everyone who was sick in our, like he just cleared out EMMC, every sick person walked away healed. If he, if he taught with, with such wisdom and splendor and, and knowledge that it, was just, it, it just overwhelmed my heart, and, and then I saw him do, do the impossible and catch that kind of fish in, in the day when no one has ever done that, yeah, I'd follow him. Of course I would. Peter, I would follow him just like you did. But we sit here today and we say, Jesus, it, could you just do for me what you did for them? Could you just show me what you showed them? And I get the feeling that if Peter were here, if Simon Peter were here and we basically said to him, hey, Peter, that's awesome, and I would have followed too if Jesus did for me what he did for you. Do you know what Peter's response to us would be? Seriously? S seriously? You, you, you want another sign like that to follow him? Like, seriously, you're not going to follow him now after all he's... Like, do you know what he's even done for you? He just did a fish trick for me. That's it. He made some fish jump in my boat. And you say, if he did that for you, you'd follow. Do you know what he's done for you? And then you say, you should know what he's done for you because I've written you a letter. As a matter of fact, I've written you two letters. And I'm not talking about the Bible. I'm talking about the letters that I've written to you. These are personal accounts of what Jesus has done in my life and what he wants to do in your life. And if Peter were here, my guess is he would begin to dictate from his letters. Let me get this straight. You're here in this day and age after everything and all the information that I've given you, after everything that's written in this incredible like, collection of documents about what Jesus did on earth, and you're telling me you're waiting for another sign to follow him? Come on. Follow him. Do you know what he's done for you? Let, let me tell you what he's done for you. And Peter would begin to quote from his, his letter. He would say this. When they had hurled their insults at him, he, Jesus, did not retaliate. When, when Jesus was beaten, when he was flogged, when he, his beard was ripped out, when he was so bloodied and battered that his own mother wouldn't recognize him, he never retaliated. When they forced him to carry his cross, he never complained. 
When he laid down on it and they nailed him to it, he never said a word. Have you ever seen a crucifixion? Of course, we'd say, well, no. Have you ever smelled a crucifixion? No, Pete, I haven't even smelled a crucifixion. Have you ever heard the screams of a grown man who knew that he was going to hang on that cross for hours until he died? Have you ever experienced that? No, Peter, I've, I've, never, I've never seen, I've never experienced, and, and by, by what you're telling me, I don't even think I want any more details. I have. And I watched my friend beaten, I watched him carry a cross, and I watched him hang on a cross. I smelled it, I saw it, and not once did he retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. He would say, guys, this is unbelievable. You don't understand. When people hung on the cross, they would do anything they could to get down. They would scream. They would hurl insults. They would beg for their mothers. Not once. Not for my Jesus. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And to us, this was the most unjust act imaginable. But it's as if somehow Jesus knew that this was part of a bigger plan. That no, this isn't one something, something he wanted, but that there was so much more at stake. Never before, I mean, men wouldn't die for anyone, but Jesus would put himself willfully on the cross and never complain and never retaliate for your sins and for mine. Peter would say, guys, do you know what he's done for you? He did a fish trick for me. But then he goes on, and it's almost as if he's saying, at this point, I, I, I kind of imagine, like, after all that I've done and all that I've witnessed, after being so scared that when they arrested Jesus, I ran away, and when they're, they're, they're having this unfair courtroom d- debate about Jesus, I'm on the outskirts, and I run away terrified. I've denied him to a little girl because I was so scared of what they'd think, and I was hanging on a cross, and I'm on the outskirts of a crowd with my hoodie pulled up, trying to make sure no one sees me, but I'm watching my friend die. After all of that, it's kind of like something clicks in Peter. And he says, he, he himself bore our sins in his body on that cross so that we might die to sin. So that all of us, so that you and me might die to sin. We say, what does that even mean to die to sin? And, and, and here's the explanation. It's because sin came and separated us from God. That God wanted to be in a, in a relationship with us. He wanted to know us. He wanted to intimately connect with us. And sin came and forever separated us. Sin had power over us, and it was keeping us from our Heavenly Father. And Peter's saying, no, when Jesus came, when he died, he defeated sin. He destroyed it, and he's inviting us to die to it so that sin no longer has power over you. Sin can't keep you from your Heavenly Father. Sin can't keep you from that intimate relationship. He said, we are invited to die to sin so that we would know him and know how much he loves us and know that nothing could separate us from his love, to know his plans for us. And you're wanting a fish trick. Do you know what he's done for you? And he doesn't end there. He says, and then, after all this, we can live for righteousness. We can live a fearless life for righteousness because after all, Jesus, our master, our Messiah, he had power over the elements. He had power over nature. He had power over sin. So we could live a fearless life, not worrying about sickness, not worrying about disease, not worrying about about the trouble that comes with the world because we follow a Savior who had power over it all 
So we can live a life free from these kind of things. We can live a life that is a good life, that, that values others first, that's built on the values and the principles of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. He said, you can live a life of righteousness now. And that's not all. He said, by his wounds, by his physical wounds, by the beating he encountered, you and me, you should know this, he says. You should know this. You should know what he's done for you. By his wounds, you have been healed. Your sin has been washed away. You've been restored into that relationship with your father. Do you know what he's done for you? He came to connect you back to your father. He came to pay a penalty that he didn't deserve. He came and he bore your sins on the cross. You don't need a fish trick. Do you know what he's done for you? Do you know? You should follow him. You should follow him because he did all of this for you and for you and for you and for you. Do you know what he's done for you? I think Peter would ask you a follow-up question. It's a question I think Peter had to wrestle with when Jesus asked him to go fishing. I think it's a question all of us need to answer, and it's a question I've, I've talked about here time and time again that, that I think this morning you need to have an answer for. What's your next step? What's your next step? Peter was invited to go fishing. He had to be willing to say yes. You're invited to follow, to die to sin and follow Jesus. What's your next step? For some of you, you need to turn away from that old faith that has kept you just consumed with guilt, that has kept you consumed with, with this idea that, that you're a sinner and you can never be in a relationship, you can never be connected to God. You need to run away from that and pursue this new thing Jesus introduced. That is a prerequisite to be with him. It is a prerequisite to follow him, to realize that I'm a sinner. For some of you, you need to abandon your old way of thinking for some of you, you've been gripped by, by, by everything that goes on in our culture, by, by how we, we live and, and how we function, and you need to abandon that, and you need to begin to pursue a life that, a life that can live righteously, a life that can live free from this old way, this old kingdom of man kind of mindset, into this new way, this new kingdom of God mindset, where we value others first. What's your next step? For some of you, your faith has become stale and it has become old and it has become dry and you're not even sure you really believe it's just something you do on a Sunday morning. What's your next step? Would you be willing to say yes? Would you be willing to be uncomfortable? Would you be willing to have a conversation with someone you didn't think you'd want to have a conversation with because Jesus asked you to? For some of you, maybe it's serving. And not serving here, maybe it's just serving the people you love, the people you know. For some of you, maybe it's giving, and maybe it's not even giving here. Maybe it's just giving a little more of yourself to that person down the street that you know is in need. Maybe it's giving something to the guy in the corner, even though you're not sure what he's going to spend his money on. What is your next step? Here's how we're going to close this morning. The worship team is going to come up. We're going to play a song. We don't do this every week, but I want to give you a moment to reflect. I want to give you a moment to respond. Jesus has invited you into something brand new. Will you follow him? Will you die to sin? For some of you, maybe you're not sure what you believe. You're, you're not sure about this whole thing, about, about faith at, at all. 
Maybe this morning your first step is just to acknowledge that Jesus, that Jesus is who he says he is. You're not sure you want to follow, but you have to admit, he's pretty amazing. And he's definitely more than any man I've ever met. Maybe for you, you've made that confession, but you've never said, Jesus, I want to follow you. Maybe this morning, it's your opportunity to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I don't need another sign. I don't need a fish trick. I've seen what you've done for me, and I'm willing to say yes this morning. What's your next step? Are you willing to say yes to Jesus? They're going to sing a song. Before they do, I want to say a prayer. I'm going to ask you to stand as they sing. And we'll respond from there. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person here. God, I thank you for this incredible story. God, I thank you that Jesus, God, he lived his life in such an amazing way. God, it is unlike anybody we've ever heard or unlike anybody we've ever read about. I pray that this story, God, would mean so much to our hearts. That Jesus isn't inviting us into this, this radical abandon. He's inviting us to just take a baby step. Just take a step. Just take a step. Just take a step. And as we respond and we take a step in his direction, I pray, God, that our lives would begin to change, that our hearts would begin to change, that this information that we've seen and that we've heard, God, it would begin to take shape in the form of faith and belief, and that we would believe that Jesus ultimately is who he says he is, and that he will do what he has promised to do. I pray for every person here, God, that you would give us the wisdom to respond and the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.